Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, and looking this evening at the latter portion, verses 15 to 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There is God's holy word. May He bring His blessing. Let's pray for that blessing. Father, we do thank You that Your word is again before us to instruct our hearts and to bring forth that wisdom and and as these words declare, to bring forth that wisdom that teaches and admonishes us and as much as it is uh, something that we can use to help build up the faith of others as we come before you this evening, your word is, is here to speak to our hearts first and foremost that we may know your holy ways and that we may know uh, the love and the glory of Christ our Savior even more, that we may walk worthy of his name. So Lord, give us strength, uh, uh, physical bodily strength to to hear your word and give us that spiritual uh, sight and uh, that spiritual hearing uh, that we need to receive your word. And, and to uh, have it hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Come and bless these things as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you come to this particular text in chapter 3, especially as uh, you can see from the title uh, of, the bu- of the message in your bulletin, that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As we come uh, to the conclusion of Paul's instruction about how we as a church are to conduct ourselves, how we are to bring forth that new life creation that is ours in Christ. This is actually Paul's conclusion to what he's already spoken about in chapter 2, where he warns against the issues of legalism and extreme asceticism, what we call a, a kind of piety where the Christian faith is seen more as a list of what you do and what you don't, Uh, a a book of rules that we put into place and we say everyone must conform to to this uh, idealism of what Christianity is. This is a concluding statement to all of that. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've always, when I, when I read that verse and when I think of it even uh, in respect of this message tonight, I think that's a huge mandate. <laughs> Everything that I do is to be done 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when you think about doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus, it's not just simply a huge mandate. It it is something that comes with that third commandment and the implications of that third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, and, And because God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so you have this mandate before us that whatever you do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but don't take His name in vain. <laughs> and and there, there's the guarding principle of, of our life uh, in Christ. It, it's also a principle that falls in line with our shorter catechism question number one. What is your chief purpose in life? Why has God created you? Why has God brought His redeeming love to you in Christ? It is so that you may glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That our whole life, uh, in every stage of our life, from, from childhood till uh, we enter into those years nearing death, Everything about us is purposed to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify God. And the thing about this mandate, it doesn't mean that it's something that we just attach to what we are doing. We don't use this mandate just simply to justify something that we are doing as a gift or an experience that we want to dedicate to the Lord. We can't justify sin with this mandate. However subtle it may seem in our minds. I remember one person, and this is a long time ago, so it's not reflective of anyone in our congregation, but a Christian who was explaining why they missed worship to allow their children to play soccer on on the Lord's Day. Because it gave them an opportunity to witness to the other parents that were were there who never went to church or who weren't Christians. And, and, and that kind of justifying of whatever we do, it doesn't work that way. We're, we're not able to simply say that whatever I do, as long as I say it's done in the Lord's name, it's good. And it will be pleasing to God. It's not that kind of a mandate. It's a mandate that's meeting us in all that Paul has said about our lives as as Christians. That we can spend much more of our time trying to please people at the expense of pleasing God. Or pleasing self at the expense of pleasing God. We can spend much more time focused on what we think will make us better in the eyes of others, or things that we think will make us better in our own lives. Uh, What he's talked about there with the extreme piety and asceticism that was taking over in in the Colossian church. And if you come and you make Christianity all about what you do and what you don't, how you practice certain things, that rule book style of Christianity, it can turn your heart's motives away from living your life to the glory of God to living your life to yourself. 
And that's where this comes as a culmination of so much of what Paul has has written. He's dealing here with your heart's motives. The reason why we worship twice on the Lord's Day. Because we're devoting this day to the Lord from the heart. It's not just a form of practice. In fact, as Paul has already reminded us that the Christian life, not being a rule book, that we need to understand that those that those who who make those lists of do's and don'ts, those who make the Christian life a rule book, they actually are showing their immaturity in understanding what true religion is about. And we have to guard against that. The other thing about verse 17 is that it also follows the principle that we looked at last week from verse 14. That above all things we are to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And and here he's talking about how that character of being a new life, a new creation in Jesus Christ, shows itself, especially in the church and especially with our relationships with one another. How we are striving to demonstrate that love of Christ in our relationships to one another. And you can't miss that because he, in verses 12 to 16, is talking all about that one anothering, if I can use that phrase. How you are relating to the whole of the church, how you are demonstrating true and sincere love to each other in the name of the Lord. And that chief principle of love being the bond of perfection is to be preeminent within your life. And if you are following that principle, then you understand that whatever you do in word or deed, however you speak to someone, however you show mercy to someone, ensure that it's done in the name of the Lord. That love to the Lord is the driving cause. I could relate this to this morning's message where Jesus talks about uh, us uh, being one body. And, and when we understand what it means to be one body, remember what He said, and so is Christ. And how what we do is being done to the Lord, whether it's witnessing to others or showing mercy and help to others. Jesus said, as much as you have done it to them, you've done it to me. And that demonstration of love and sincerity of love for one another is to be done to the Lord. And, and so that principle of love and the bond of perfection is also very much tied in uh, with verse 17, doing all in the name of the Lord. And, and j- just to bring it all together, this, this principle is to be preeminent in the church. And so if, going back to what I already said about chapter 2, if you want to celebrate holidays, do it to the Lord. Not for the sake of tradition. Not for the sake of people. But do it to the Lord. If you don't want to celebrate holidays, do it to the Lord. Not in obstinance. Not in stubbornness. (laughs) Not in lovelessness. Do it to the Lord. If you want to eat all things, 
give thanks to the Lord. If you choose not to eat certain things, give thanks to the Lord. Don't do it in spite of. It's like Paul said in Romans 14. Don't do these things in judgment of one another. Which often becomes how we do things, isn't it? That's a wrong motive. Christ is not looking for superficial love from His people. And when we understand that principle, that whatever we are doing in word or deed, doing it all in the name of the Lord, it it takes away that superficial love that can occupy so much time and space. This kind of love is, as we heard last week from verse 12, is kind, it's humble, it's meek, it's long-suffering. It's Christ-like. I remember some time ago, a long time ago, it's something that's always stuck with me. In fact, I wrote it on a card. Uh, This was uh, from 2009 that I saw this sign that a church had. It seemed to be a trend. I see it less and less now, but uh, it's still a bit of a trend where churches will put some some succinct statement uh, on their sign to grab people's attention. And, and I just remembered this sign because I thought, while it, it may have a hint of truth, it, it becomes one of those things that you step back and you ask, is it truly the best? And the church sign said this, the best example of love is time. And I thought, while it can be an example of love, that's certainly not the best. And we know that, don't we, dear Christians? Because what did Jesus say was the greatest form of love? That you lay down your life for your friends. And, and if we were going to keep something like that in our minds about what the best example of love is, we would have to say the best example of love is, is sacrifice. The giving up of ourselves for another. Mimicking Christ in that way. We, we can't bring God's saving mercies at all in anything that is, is issuing forth from us as a sacrifice. But we can certainly point people to Christ and the sacrifice that He has made for us and for the covering of our sins by His life given in our place. And and in that light of that, that example of love being sacrificed, what did Christ command of us? That we should love one another even as I have loved you. Look to my love for you, He says, if you want to show and demonstrate your love to one another within the church. See how I, the righteous one, have given myself for you, the unrighteous one. See how I, the innocent, gave up my life for the guilty. And see how I, the preeminent one, to borrow Paul's words here in Colossians 1.18, See how I, the preeminent one, the one who is the first, how I have given my life 
for the last and the least. And and it's that example of Christ that now becomes our life to live. And, And it falls again in line with what he says, whatever you are doing in word and deed, within your your relationships with one another in the church, ensure that love is preeminent. And ensure that it is a love that imitates Christ. And, and, and we need to have that, that firmly fixed in our minds, in our lives. This love of Christ is what is to permeate the church. And that love of Christ is what is to govern us when we look at what we do, whether it is in word or deed. To do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus is to look to His example of love and to imitate it in our lives. And thus having said all of that, what is it that continues to help us in in that imitation of Christ, in living our life to His glory, doing all in the name of the Lord? And, And the first thing we see in verse 15 is is this letting the peace of God rule in our hearts. It, it is a hard thing to sacrifice yourself for another, even in the church. It, it is a hard thing to give up positions and ideas or standards, in, in a sense, so that the love of Christ may be real and sincere to one another within the church. And so how do we how do we fulfill this high mandate uh, in word or deed doing all in the name of the Lord? Well, first of all the peace of God must rule in our hearts. You look at that word rule. I know some of your versions might say the peace of Christ. There is a textual matter with that. Um, I'm just reading the King James. I think it should be the peace of Christ. But it's interesting, that word rule, when you hear that word rule, for us, and the foremost thought that comes to our mind is the rule of a king or a queen or whatever over a nation. The rule of a law over our lives. The interesting thing about that word translated into rule is that it's actually a a word that means to be an umpire. (laughs) It's not where an edict is stated and now follow it. It's saying, let the peace of God or the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. (laughs) That sounds strange, doesn't it? But but that's that's the way uh, Paul is presenting it to the church, so that they understand that in every circumstance and and dealings that you have with one another, there's not a real set rule that is in place where you must always follow this. That we're dealing with one another where we are in our various stations as Christians, and so there needs to be this kind uh, uh, attitude, this, this kind and sober thinking that, that umpires 
our relationship. And it is the peace of God that becomes that umpire. You know what an umpire is? Is someone in, in the, the most, uh, acceptable understanding is it's somebody who stands behind home plate in a baseball game and judges whether the ball that is thrown across the plate is a, a strike or a ball. They don't always get it right. And in many times we we think someone is a bad umpire when we believe it was a strike and he calls it a ball and we believe it was a ball and he calls it a strike. And and we see even there with an umpire how easy it is to get all riled up. But, But here, it's that kind of sense that Paul is saying God's peace must be this rule in your life where it brings forth that judgment. What is right in this place with my relationship with this person? And is love being the preeminent bond? And what helps me to understand if I'm doing this in the name of the Lord and and to His glory is when the peace of Christ comes and becomes that determining factor in my heart as I respond to this person. And there the peace of God begins to govern harmony in the church. Not my personal expectations, not my preferences, but the peace of Christ. Again, this isn't easy. But this is where we begin. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, that as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And, and that really begins again within the church to live peaceably with my fellow believers in the Lord. What is this peace? Well, there's four things that make for this peace. Because again, you can't do this unless it is the peace of Christ that is ruling. What is this peace? First of all, it is that peace that has been secured by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 5.1. It's one of the more important verses of Scripture. Having been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have what? We have peace with God. So look to your heart. Are you at peace with God? You're not going to be much of a peacemaker and you're not going to be living peaceably with all men if you are not at peace with the One who has created all of us. (laughs) And the only way to be at peace with God is by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing what He has done in order to deal with your sins and God's judgment upon you. And when you have that settled with God, when you look to Christ and you realize He's paid the penalty for my sin, He has quenched, as the hymn says, God's law, the the loud thunder of the law. He, He has silenced the wrath of God against me by bearing it in His death. That I have been justified in the Lord Jesus. And I now have this peace with God. That's where it begins. Because then it is God's peace. The peace of Christ that is working in me. 
I do not walk in fear of death. I do not walk in fear of God's judgment. I do not walk in fear that that sin is going to be held against me because Christ has borne those things away and has given me life. My friends, we're always, we're always looking to the cross. That's why we sang that hymn, Draw Me Near. Draw me nearer to it. That's, that's always our hope and our plea, what Jesus did on the cross. And when we look at that peace that He has secured for us with God, it's also a peace that Christ brings in breaking whatever hostility that our self-love perpetuates and builds that wall between us and one another. We realize that very peace that He secured for me with God is a peace that He has brokered for all of God's people. And we see ourselves not only reconciled to God, but we have been reconciled. We have been made friends one with another in the Lord Jesus before God. Christ has broken down all those barriers and hostilities that should exist amongst us. We realize that. And you can read Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, where Paul makes that bold statement, there should be nothing that is a wall between us because Christ's grace and Christ's sacrifices for all of us. And He has accomplished that. Third thing about that peace is that it is a peace that understands God's providence is at work in us, working everything for good so that anxiety and fretting and fear are far removed from us. The very peace of God now guards our hearts and minds that I do not have to be afraid that if something goes, goes wrong in my mind and understanding of my life, if something uh, terrible happens, I realize God's at work in my life. I don't need to be anxious and worrisome. I don't even need to fear death because the peace of God brings forth a confidence and a contentment in my life. I don't have to fear if I'm going to lose something. I don't have to fear if somebody comes and wants to take something from me. It's not the end of my life. <laughs> and, and, and how many times in Scripture do we, do we hear the Lord saying that in, in respect of, of a peace that we are to have, that if somebody comes to you and says, I want your tunic, give it to them. I, I want you to carry this amount, carry it too. Somebody comes to sue you because they think you wronged them, let them have what he's asking for. And I know, and all our minds were saying, yeah, but, but they, they're, they're stealing from me. But you know, in all of those circumstances, what does the Lord say? Let them have it. <laughs> because our life is more than the things we possess, isn't it? And in that kind of peace with God, that peace, sorry, that peace of God is what guards our mind and our hearts. How we think. 
Told you it isn't easy, is it? It's hard. But it's also a peace that comes and abides in the humble and the contrite heart. Read these words from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 15 and verses 19 to 21. Just just listen to these words. For thus says the high and lofty one, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now God is making this statement that I will be with such a one who in humility and contrition walks this manner before God. It's like what Paul said in Philippians when he talks about the peace of God being with us and guarding our hearts and minds. He then goes on to say in that same passage, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, this is what Isaiah was saying. And then you go down to verse 19 of the same chapter and he says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off, to him who is near, says the Lord. I will heal him. The wicked, they're like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But the contrary is true. There is peace for the broken, for the contrite and humble of heart. And you see Paul here saying, this is the peace that settles upon us. And this is the peace that then becomes the umpire in situations. And and it can look at any situation that arises between you and one another within the church. That where the peace of God is settled in your hearts, it will help you to rule wisely. Because it will make you ask the question, will Christ be glorified by my anger or by my gentleness? Will my demands or my sacrifices work and be able to show forth the glory of God? Is it my ego or is it humility that is at work in this situation? Is it my wanting to be right or the love that covers a multitude of sin at work here? The peace of God works to be such an umpire. And what is the fruit of this peace at work? Well, you see it there. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which, you, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. It generates thanksgiving. It, uh, uh, the peace of God brings us to that place where we can be thankful to the Lord. And in very particular manners, we can be thankful for the saints that He has surrounded us with. It's it's one of the marvelous things about all of Paul's letters. That he, as he writes to the various churches and to the various people, he always says this, I give thanks 
to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for you. And you know the peace of God is ruling in your heart when you come to that place when you can look at someone and say, God, thank you for them. That's how Paul began this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints. And he goes on and on and on. And he just lifts them up and he says, I am just so thankful to God for you, even with all your problems. <laughs> That's the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And secondly, and very quickly, just to finish this, in verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. The Word of Christ. Now, of course, he's talking about Scripture. He's talking about God's Holy Word. But he calls it the Word of Christ because, remember, he's dealing with a a situation in Colossae where we're understanding who Christ is and uh, as the divine being has been a problem. And he wants to, to understand that he, he's the author of Scripture. He's the subject of Scripture. And he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And how is it to dwell in you? It's to dwell in you, first of all, richly. And that word richly is otherwise translated abundantly. You know, one of the things that I've seen disappear in my time and generation in the church has been scripture memorization. I, I, I really, uh, I'm astounded every time I hear it, and I hear it in, in, in reform settings as much too, is, well, I really don't know scripture that well. And I'm always, well, know it. <laughs> Get to know it. I tell you, one of the, the great encouragements that I receive is often when another believer comes up to me and then begins to quote Scripture or speak Scripture verses to me. And this is part of learning to do whatever you do in word or deed, to doing all in the name of Christ. And God's Word is to dwell in our hearts abundantly, richly. And as well in all wisdom. And here is a matter of, uh, of interpretation. Uh, but the comma that you see uh, there in verse 16, after all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, the comma should be really after one another. Because when it's talking about letting the Word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, it's so that you can teach and admonish one another. It doesn't find its attachment to what follows in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart. Just, just a note on that. Because here, here God's Word is to be used by us in building one another up in love and in the faith. And when we exercise the wisdom of Christ's Word, in our conversations with one another, and in our dealings and admonishing of one another. The wisdom of God's Word becomes a help in separating what is tradition from what is truth. Just think about how we say something. You compare the phrases. 
When you come up to someone and, and you might feel the need to teach and instruct or admonish them because you see something in error in their life and you come up and you say to them something along this line, I, I don't think Christians should be doing that. Or you compare it and, and you, you have this, this relationship with someone that's been built up at you. You compare that with these words. Well, you know, God's Word says this. And it's a huge difference, isn't it? Because you're not giving your preference. You're not trying to establish another tradition. You're showing and you're building up one another with God's Word and you're using it in wisdom to teach and to admonish that word admonish in the Greek. Some of you will know it is the word nuthetic. <laughs> Counseling. Counseling someone with God's Word. And which scenario will carry the influence of the Holy Spirit and especially the influence of grace. This is the wisdom that James says in James 3, which is first and foremost pure, and then what? Peaceable. (laughs) Because if we're believers in the Lord, and God's Word is meeting us, and it's supposed to dwell in us abundantly and richly, the wisdom of God's Word meets us in the Spirit and in grace. And the heart is so much more attuned to receiving it. And this wisdom isn't just simply pure and peaceable. It's gentle. And getting back to the rule of the peace of God, it's willing to yield. It's willing to give deference to the other. The one anothering that we need to exercise. It's a wisdom that when exercised wisely in teaching and admonishing, it looks at one another and realizes that we are all where we are by the grace of God. It helps us not to discourage one another. It helps us to weigh what is most important. But it realizes that in God's grace, we are where we are in our faith. And it helps us to nurture. And when the Word of Christ is dwelling in us uh, richly and in all wisdom, where does it bring us? It brings us to praise and worship. Uh, it, It flows from a heart that lives in the grace of Jesus Christ. I know this probably doesn't happen to some of you, but I had this experience this past week when I was working with a brother and we were doing some work downstairs and, and he broke out in song singing Psalm 48. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, that's the psalm I chose for Sunday morning. And, and it, it, it just brought a smile. Now, I, I don't know if you want me to come over and sing to you like, uh, like this brother did. But isn't that what it's saying here? That in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you're singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And it's not void of that presence of one another. But it's, it's, it's when the, the Word of Christ dwells in our hearts to that extent that we can't help but sing of the glory of our God. And again, just taking those two points of thankfulness to the Lord for the saints that He has set around you 
is missing, if praise is far from your lips. My friends, those are signs more likely that you have moved away from grace and moved away from grace in your dealings with one another than actually exercising it. You recall what I said before, (laughs) that you don't need to go up to someone and say, "Uh, look, I need to speak to you out of love. (laughs) You need to show love. And that love will be filled with the richness of God's peace and wisdom of His Word. And, And it will be met in the strength of the Spirit. And in these ways, and bringing it to that end, when we have these things in place, whatever we're doing in word or deed, we can say we're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the key, isn't it? It's not my preference and my tradition. It's the glory of the Lord. Let's pray.